open up your Bibles, and we are in the book of 2 Samuel, but I want you to turn back to 1 Samuel, and I want you to turn to chapter 20. You can just keep your finger there. And uh, there is a word in the Bible that comes up all the time. And if you are a Hebrew scholar, you'll know the word really well because you will see it on many, many pages of the Old Testament. And it's the word hesed. Can you say hesed? Hesed. It is a constant word. It's a theme that's come up in a number of, of our sermons on the life of David. And it's very simply this. God's loyal, enduring, steadfast, covenantal love. So when God is said to have said towards us, this is a special kind of love that is for his kids. It is enduring, it is loyal, it is steadfast, it perseveres. It's the kind of love that says, um, it does not matter how bad you are. I'm going to fulfill my end of the bargain and I'm going to love you despite. So we think about this kind of said is supposed to be in marriage. And, you know, my wife and I have been married, I, I think, 11 years. And... It's 11 years. I actually, I had not thought about that until right now, and I'm like, she's gone, so that's cool. Um, she's not here this morning. Anyways, we've been married for 11 years, and she has had to put up with me, and her, the reason we're still together is because she has, has said, this is a loyal love that says, whether or not you're a good husband or a bad husband, I have committed myself to you. Now, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there is a theologian. His name was B.B. Warfield. And B.B. Warfield is one of the most influential authors and writers of that time, protected and preserved the gospel in uh, a season of liberalism, um, had such a high view of the gospel, the inerrancy of the Word of God. And at a young age, B.B. married um, a woman named Annie. And I want to just read to you an excerpt um, about their marriage. Soon after marrying, Bibi and Annie, the newlyweds, joined to Europe. And during their stay, an event occurred that would forever change the Warfields' lives. While walking together in the Harz Mountains in Europe, Mr. and Mrs. Warfield were caught in a violent thunderstorm. Annie Warfield suffered a severe trauma to her nervous system from which she never fully recovered. She was so severely traumatized that she would spend the rest of her life as an invalid becoming increasingly more incapacitated as the years went by. Her husband was to spend the rest of their, her and her husband were to spend the rest of their lives giving her constant attention and, and care until she died in 1915. B.B. could not have foreseen just how constant and difficult a demand this was to become and how in the providence of God this would impact his entire career. B.B. Warfield's remarkable literary output is no doubt in large measure due to the frail condition of his wife and his amazing devotion to her. With the pen, he was a formidable foe. But as one of his friends described him, quote, I used to see them walking together and the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. They had no children and during the years spent at Princeton where he taught, he rarely, if ever, was absent for any length of time. Mrs. Warfield was a brilliant woman, and Dr. Warfield would read to her several hours each day. According to most accounts, Dr. Warfield almost never ventured away from her side for more than two hours at a time. He is, uh, was given a responsibility that most in this room would never want from the very early stages of their marriage. This is Hesed. 
there is um, a man named Robertson McQuilkin, who's the president of Columbia Bible College, and he had been married for over 40 years to his bride. And I want you to read to you his resignation letter as the president of Columbia Bible College. He wrote, The decision to resign was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration, I don't have to care for her, I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. And she had Alzheimer's in the later parts of her life, and it required him leaving his entire life to give full and devoted attention to her. This is Hesed. So I want you to read with me in 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to look at verse 14. Jonathan um, knows that David is going to be the king. Jonathan's dad is king, fill in the blank, Saul. King Saul's days are numbered. Jonathan and David were best friends, loyal, faithful. Um, and Jonathan looks at David, and he says this in verse 14, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That word is said. Show me said that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love. Say it with me. said from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, was the house of Saul and therefore Jonathan an enemy of David because of their opposition to him? Answer is yes. And so Saul knows. You know what happens when a new king comes in? It's time for the purge. It is time to kill every single living being that was a part of that person's lineage in any way, shape, or form to cut off the threat of some kind of coup or rebellion. Verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Many, many, many years before 2 Samuel 9, where we'll be this morning, David and Jonathan, as brothers, made a, made a covenant with each other. And David looked at him, and he said, I will not blot out your home, your house, Jonathan, forever. I will remain faithful to you. And so this promise, I want you to see this. When you make a covenant with somebody, when you make a solemn vow or promise to somebody, this is an enormously huge deal. And we make covenants on a regular basis, but I don't think any covenant in our life um, gets as close to this really as the covenant of marriage does, uh, to understanding how important a covenant was for um, David and the Jews in general. And so David steps back, and for him to make a covenant, this is a solemn oath that no matter how many years go by, he he will hold himself to keep to this promise. Now, turn with me to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. 
David has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. David um, has been winning battles. God has come to David and he's made the Davidic covenant with him where he promised him a future and that David's kingship and his lineage would go forever and ever and ever. It was a promise waiting for Jesus to come. And David now um, is sitting back and I want you to hear what David says. And I want you to ask yourself, have you ever, ever had this thought come through your mind? He says in verse one, chapter nine, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show kindness, or what's the word? said, for Jonathan's sake. What made this come up in David's mind? What, from where did this come from? He remembers now and he looks back and he says, you know, I made a covenant with, with, with Jonathan. Now, probably what brought this to his mind was what happened just a couple chapters earlier. God made a covenant with him. And David's whole life, he is banking on God coming through on his promise to David. And David says, you know what, if God is going to be a covenant keeper, I probably need to be a covenant keeper as well. And David remembers this promise that he's made, and he's trying to find somebody related to Jonathan that he can show this steadfast, loyal, covenantal love to, to uphold his end of the bargain. Now, verse 2 says this, Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. I love that name. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show thee kindness? Say with me, Hesed. Hesed of God to him. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. Here's what he's trying to communicate to him. Um, David, I'm sure you want to show Jonathan's son Hased, right? Um, But everybody knows that the king is going to look for the son of the prince, right? Uh, The grandson of the king to kill him. And so uh, Ziba looks at him and says, look, 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 David, you have nothing to worry about. He's a cripple. He can't walk. He's lame. Uh, He is no threat to you. Don't worry about this in any way, shape, or form. Verse four, it says, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now I want to rewind with you, and you can mark this in your notes, 2 Samuel 4.4, because the story of this man, his name is Mephibosheth. Anyone ever heard that name before? Mephibosheth. I'm going to jack that name up, I guarantee you. Uh, In your notes, actually, I just call him M throughout all the community group questions, just to make your life easy. Mephibosheth. and so the story actually starts in 2 Samuel 4.4, and I want to read this to you because this sets up the context for everything that we're going to understand. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet, and the text is going to tell us how he got crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was, say with me, Mephibosheth. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to practice that one a couple times. But I want, you to, I want you to go back and I want you to put yourself in the heart and in the head of a five-year-old boy who is a prince of Israel. I want you to put yourself in this little boy's mind. He uh, is a prince. He lives in a palace. He sees the king come and go. He eats incredibly. He's got maids and servants to help him with whatever he wants. And this little boy knows nothing different. And then one day, somebody comes shouting in the house, the king is dead. Saul and all of his sons are dead. And then everybody starts panicking because what's going to happen next? The purge. And this little boy 
is sitting there. And all of a sudden, his nurse, for some reason, takes him up and they start running and they're running and they're running. And he doesn't know what's happening. There's confusion in this kid's head. And she trips over something and he falls and literally breaks his back and severs some kind of nervous uh, nerves that make him unable to walk. Five years old. And he's orphaned. He hasn't just lost his grandpa. I mean, if, if any of you have ever lost a grandparent, it's heartbreaking. He hasn't just lost a grandpa. He hasn't just lost three uncles. He lost his dad. In one moment, this kid's life is turned on his head. He is orphaned, running from who? He thinks David, probably. He's lost everything, familiarity, his home, his family. He's injured and crippled, running for his life, probably wondering every single day, will today be the day that David finds me and kills me. Most of you have never had to go to bed wondering if you're going to wake up with a knife at your throat, but this five-year-old did for the rest of his life. And where would he go should the enemy, should David and his warriors come in? Because he can't move. His name was Merib Baal, which means opponent of Baal. And his nurse apparently gave him a new name because she needed to hide him. And now his new name is Mephibosheth which unfortunately means son of shame. So to be crippled is one of the most shameful things of this society. And now he is shamed by his physical weakness, and he is brought to um, a very sad city called Lodebar. And I want to read to you a description of Lodebar. The very meaning is no word or no pasture, meaning basically nowhere and there's nothing there. Where are they? They're nowhere. It's a hiding place. It was a town of forgotten people, including Mephibosheth, the son of David's best friend, Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul. In Lodabar, we would find the lost, the unskilled, uneducated outcasts from society. Where do you go when you're the prince of Israel and you need to hide from the king so that nobody could find you? You go to Lodabar. He's five. He's six. He's seven. He's eight. By the time this is written, he, we're thinking is maybe somewhere around 20 years old. And now here's my big question. Let's go back to Ziba. Ziba is the um, person who oversaw the household of Saul. He has hidden Mephibosheth for years and years and years and years. Why now does Ziba give up Mephibosheth? And we're going to learn later in the book of 2 uh, Samuel that all Ziba wanted was the property. Um, Ziba thought, if nobody finds out, I just get to keep all of Saul's property and it will go from to all of my kids and we will just keep this in-house. And so what would Ziba have? What would be his motive for giving up Mephibosheth? It is very simply to get him out of the way because he knows that most kings, most 99% of kings in all of human history would have actually killed Mephibosheth and brought him there under trickery saying, Oh, I'm going to show you his set. And they would chop his head off as soon as he got there. And so Ziba was counting on, counting on that David was going to do this. And we watched that played out in the rest of the book of 2 Samuel with Ziba where he deceives David and lies to him a number of times. But um, here's what we have, verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, at Debar. I want you to imagine you are Mephibosheth and you're sitting in your nowhere town in the middle of nowhere and you can't walk. You're with a bunch of cripples and then all of a sudden there are a bunch of guards at the table and Ziba is sitting there knocking on the door saying, David wants to see you. Now get up and go. What are you feeling? So this is it. What, what does he want to see me for? He wants to show you kindness. <laughs> right, that's exactly what he wants to do. 
Verse 6, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and I think he does what he only knew how to do. He fell on his face, and he paid homage. Now, many of you are going to think of him as standing up. When they bring somebody who cannot walk in this time before the king, he's probably sitting down. And he does with the only part of his body that's functioning, what he knows how to do, is he throws his face down. And at this point, he doesn't know if the next thing he's going to feel is a sword on his neck, a hand on his shoulder. He hears stories from grandpa. I mean, he probably remembers the insane rants about David and he's so terrible. I mean, this guy has spent his entire life running from this man, hiding from him. Uh, we don't know if Jonathan told him anything redeeming about David, if he even remembered it, if his nurse and all of the maids and servants of Saul have just so thoroughly lied to him for years and years and years and years. All we know is this, that, that Mephibosheth did not have enough confidence in David to come back sooner. Okay? He had no idea about a covenant made before he was even born. And so he's sitting there and he's waiting. Middle of verse 6. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, uh why are you happy? (laughs) Shouldn't you be angry? Where's your sword? Uh, And he says, behold, I am your servant. Now, Mephibosheth uh, had an uncle named Ishbosheth, who uh, after Saul and his three sons died, Ishbosheth was the one remaining. And he had a coup and tried to take over the kingdom from David. Um, All of the heirs to date that uh, David had been working with had tried to take over the kingdom. And he's got to be wondering, I wonder if he's upset with me because of what my uncle did. And not at all. And then at this point, you've got to imagine, what is David thinking? I wonder if David is thinking, you look just like your dad. Oh my goodness. I wonder if he's thinking, I remember when you were born. I didn't even know you were in hiding for this many years. Like the Lord just put it on my heart to say, I wonder if there's anybody else in the, in the, in the house of Jonathan that I can show has said to you. And, and I didn't even know you existed. If I had known you were there in Lodebar, I would have come and gotten you sooner and brought you here. And at this point, Mephibosheth's head is just twirling and spinning. Like what is going on here? David offers to Mephibosheth four things that I think are just so beautiful and so powerful uh, to a crippled, should have been enemy of David. And the first is this, he gives him has said, no longer cast off, no longer rejected, no longer in fear, faithfully, loyally, steadfastly loved. That is beautiful. Mephibosheth went from being an enemy to being loyally loved for the rest of his life. No matter what Mephibosheth would have, could have done, David made a promise to love him with a covenantal, steadfast love. The exact kind of love, by the way, that just two chapters or three chapters earlier, God had done for David. Undeserving, initiated by God, pursued him and said, it does not matter what you do, come hell or high water, I will love you. Verse 7, and David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you, say it with me, Hesed, Hesed, kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land, that, the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. How do you respond when you, being the enemy of the king, crippled and lame, uh, deserving death and punishment, and he comes to you and says, I'm going to give you everything and more than you could possibly imagine. What do you do? You sit in awe. Like, what is happening? This has to be a practical joke. Something has to be off somewhere because this does not make any sense. In verse 8, And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a, a dead dog such as I? 
And I, and I, I think when we celebrate communion, uh, this sentiment should pervade us. Like, what is it about me? the enemy of God, the sinner, the weak, the lame, and the crippled, that God would take initiative with me and covenant with me, a one-sided covenant, and say, whether you like it or not, I'm going to bless you. Whether you not like it or not, I have put my eyes on you. You're going to eat at my table from now on. You are my son from now on. I am going to pursue you. You can try to run. You can't get away from me. You're stuck. I love you. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to overcome the resistance inside of you. I I, I am going to um, love you persistently and faithfully. And this thing that I started in you, I'm going to finish it in you. I mean, this is unbelievable. And he steps back and says, why me? And that's the point. Why you? I'm looking at a bunch of us in this room and I'm like, I don't know why you, (laughs) right? I don't know why me. You're thinking, why? (laughs) Nothing at all. 100%. Grace, which leads us to the second thing that David gives to him, which is just pure grace, undeserved blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing, of which uh, Mephibosheth and you and me have done nothing in any way, shape, or form to deserve. Verse 9, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. At this point, Ziba says, Are you kidding me? I was banking on you killing this guy and taking all of this for myself. And of course, you don't say that. You just think those things when you're before the king. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Not only does he give him all of the property of Saul, right, which David should have taken for himself, he gives it all back to the lineage of Saul. And then he, says, then he takes Ziba and he says, yeah, Ziba, um, all 35 of you, right, your sons and your servants, you are stuck on them for the rest of your lives and your job is to be their servants. And that is it. And at this point, Mephibosheth is probably thinking, I have been mocked and spit upon and despised and rejected and have been running for my life and living in fear. I don't even, honestly, I don't even know what to say right now. Because what happens when you receive undeserved grace upon undeserved grace upon undeserved grace upon undeserved grace, you sit on your face and you say, why me? I cannot believe this. I'm going to pay homage to you, whatever it takes. By the way, this is why we sing to God in worship, because singing is a, an affectionate, emotional response to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's why some people, um, crazy as they may be, raise their hands because there's something actually bodily, right? There's this bodily reaction that happens when you actually begin to understand what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and the actual grace that he has put upon you despite you, right? And now everybody, we have these moments where it hits us fresh and new all the time. I I was reading this story and studying for this, and you'll know why by the time we get to the end of the service, but I cried like 16 times just preparing this message, and I'm thinking, I'm Mephibosheth. Why me? Literally before I was born... I mean, I had done nothing. And you didn't look into the future and say, he would make a, a good this or a good dad or a good whatever. You know, you just literally bestowed grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon me. And I had one of these beautiful privileges at four years old of God intervening in my life and sparing me from 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years of rebellion against God. I mean, why me? I don't, I don't have a clue. Other than um, God chose me and he said, I'm gonna stick my covenantal love on you, and you're stuck with me. And I'm going to say, amen, I'll be stuck with you because um, better you than being anyone else. Number three, I love this. 
This is the best word I could find. I'm, kind of, I'm giving a New Testament context to this now, but adoption. David takes Mephibosheth and he treats him as if he's his own very son. But we're in the middle of verse 10. Uh, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Bummer for him. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord king commands his servants, so your servant will do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth, I love this. This is beautiful. Probably this cripple who would never get a woman, never have a wife. Finally, because of what David has done to him, uh, he finally somehow is given a wife. And the legacy of Jonathan um, will go on for generations and generations. And it says this, um, And Mephibosheth, verse 12, had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Grace upon grace, adoption. And finally, um, before we get to that, Second Samuel 19, 24, I want you to um, understand just a, a, a piece, a little bit of the affection that Mephibosheth had for David. And in 2 Samuel 19.24, there was a coup against David. And David was run out of his palace. And 2 Samuel 19.24, here's what it said. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, grandson, technically same thing, uh, came down to meet the king, David. David is returning home after the coup is over. Mephibosheth had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed, until he came back in safety. Isn't that amazing? That he was so loyal, so devoted to him, the man who replaced his grandpa as king. He doesn't do anything. This is all very symbolic of Mephibosheth saying, I'm going to be um, fasting and praying and waiting because I am loyal to David. Fourth thing David gives Mephibosheth is protection. 400 years before this, um, Joshua made a covenant with a group of people known as the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites deceived Joshua, but the covenant was made. And can you break a covenant? No. And if you're uh, in Israel and your great-great-great-great-great-grandpa makes the covenant, are you obligated most likely to keep the terms of that covenant? Um, Yes. And so the the Gibeonites made a covenant with Israel and Joshua. Saul broke that covenant and violated this, and it angered God because you don't break your covenant. The Gibeonites um, were hunting down Mephibosheth and anyone living from the house of Saul. And what they wanted as payment for Saul's house breaking the covenant were a number of people from Saul's house or his lineage to kill. And David was obliged to give this to to them to make right what was made wrong in the breaking of this covenant. Sounds weird, but it made sense in these days. And and then here's what David did for Saul in 2 Samuel 21, 7, what he did for Mephibosheth. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And finally, the chapter closes, 13 verses. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, while we were still lame, at the right time, Christ died 
for the ungodly. Despite our spiritual weakness, our spiritual lameness, God pursued us in Christ Jesus. And he said, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And I'm going to pour out my hesed on you. Same chapter, Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, Mephibosheth was technically an enemy of David. Everybody saw it that way. Mephibosheth saw it that way. And yet God pulled him out and says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I mean, before Mephibosheth was even born, what he did not know is that a covenant was instituted that would preserve his life and bestow upon him more blessings than he could possibly ever imagine. He did nothing to receive it. Can I get an amen, Village Church? He did nothing to earn this. He got this because David loved Jonathan and made a promise to him before he was even born. And out of faithfulness to that promise, he bestows blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing on this undeserved, crippled, lame enemy. This is the power of Hesed. It is not easy, but it is unique when you see it, and it is absolutely beautiful. This is the power of Hesed. It takes otherwise sinful and selfish people, and it makes us do crazy, sacrificial, loyal faithful things. This is the power of Hesed. When you see what God has done for you in Jesus Christ by bestowing upon you Hesed, what is our obligation and responsibility, let's say it in Robert McQuilkin's words, joy to do to those that we are covenanted with. We give loyal, steadfast, enduring love, period. That's it. Some of you have an unspoken covenant with a mom or a dad who is ill and they just need your help. And you have covenanted your life to care for them. Many of you in this room are married and your marriages have been hard and difficult and frustrating and yet you have covenanted loyalty to that person till the day you die. And as you expose and live out this loyalty, you show forth the glory and the majesty and the righteousness and the beauty the Hesed of God to us in Jesus Christ.